Well, like Becky said, my name is Aaron. I'm one of the pastors here. So glad you could make it this morning. Uh, just a little background about myself. So uh, that was actually my wife up here talking. Um, so we have three teenage daughters, uh, two in high school, one in middle school. So they're all, yeah, about talking in our house. Would we like it? Uh, just a little extra background on me. It's, uh, just a little extra background. Uh, so Brandon, who's one of the other pastors here. Uh, so he spent all week last week preparing a sermon uh, on the last part of Thessalonians that he was going to give today. And he texted me saying that he's very sick. So that was a great text to get in the morning. Anyway, so trick or treat, everybody. You got me today. All right. All right. So uh, this was my master plan to consolidate power, and it's like I've come to fruition here. This is how Palpatine came into power. This is great. So there's so much, ca- there's a lot of caffeine coursing through my veins. It's like I feel like Thanos with the Infinity Gauntlet and everything. This is great. All right, so buckle up. All right, okay. So, um, so like I said, we've we've currently been going through First Thessalonians. Um, so we're not going to do that today. Uh, I didn't have a time to write a sermon from scratch at seven this morning. So, uh, so I decided that we're going to be preaching. I'm going to prioritize familiarity. So uh, I'm going to be preaching uh, on Philippians chapter two, verses nineteen through thirty. So uh, I preached on this passage two or three years ago. Um, so if you think you heard a version of this, it's because you have. Okay. So. Um, you know, I was, I was reading this sermon, like, this morning at 7, I was just like, I don't even think I even remember a lot of this. So, like, this is, I don't think any of you do either, so it's great. Anyway, um, yeah, well, let's pray, because that seems like a great idea. So, so God, we're really thankful for you. Um, we're thankful for the gospel, and, like, we're thankful for the example um, of your son. We pray that you will empower us to um, see the example of your son as, as the greatest news, that's not only like cognitively good news for us, but just like we see, um, we see the gospel as beautiful and captivating. And yeah, we need you for that. We can't do that without your Holy Spirit. We can't have that be operational um, in our hearts except by your Spirit. So yeah, we need you for that. I pray that you'd like um, create unity around the gospel, continue to, to do that um, through your word this morning and through my preaching. Yeah, we need you for that. We love you. Amen. All right, so just a little background on Philippians since we're parachuting into that this morning. So, so Philippians is in the New Testament. That's the second half of the Bible. So the second half of the Bible is all about like the, um, the person and work of Jesus. Like, and so Philippians is in there. It's this little book. So, so Paul wrote uh, 1 Thessalonians, but he also wrote Philippians as well. So Paul and his crew, they planted the church in Philippi, um, yeah, at, at about 50 AD on one of his missionary journeys. So, uh, so this letter from Paul to the Philippian church was written about 10 years later. So River City is about a seven-year-old church plant, so Philippi is about a 10-year-old church plant. So when Paul is writing this letter to the Philippians while he's far away in prison in Rome, and while in and while Paul was parent, well, while Paul was in prison, he wrote a letter of correspondence to the church in the city of Philippi. And when the the church in Philippi, when they gathered for worship, like we're doing right now, it's like they read Paul's words to out loud to in the worship service, just like we're going to be doing. So, Philippians chapter two, verse nineteen. So that'll be up on the screen right there. I'll read it. 
So Paul says, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, that I also may be cheered. He's British or something. Like when I, was, when I received news about you, I have no one else like him who will show genuine concern for your welfare. For everyone looks out for their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know that Timothy has proved himself because as a son with, a, with his father, he has served with me in the work of the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him as soon as I see how things go with me. And I am confident in the Lord that I myself will come soon. But I think it is necessary to send back to you Epaphroditus, my brother, co-worker, and fellow soldier, who is also your messenger, whom you sent to take care of my needs. For he longs for all of you and is distressed because you heard he was ill. Indeed, he was ill and he almost died, but God had mercy on him. And not only on him, but also on me to spare me sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore, I am all the more eager to send him so that when you see him again, like you may be glad and I may have less anxiety. So then, welcome him in the Lord with great joy and honor people like him because he almost died for the work of Christ. He risked his life to make up for the help you yourselves could not give me. So the big idea in this sermon is seeing a real-life example is critical for making disciples because you teach what you know, but you reproduce who you are. Say that one more time. Seeing a real-life example is critical for making disciples because you teach what you know, but you reproduce who you are. So in this passage, Paul is in prison in Rome, and Timothy and Epaphroditus were taking care of him. So Paul was literally chained to a guard, but his imprisonment was, imprisonment was kind of like an intense form of being under house arrest. So that's why he could have caregivers just kind of come and go and provide for his needs. And this letter in, to the local church in Philippi, um, Paul expresses his desire to send Timothy and Epaphroditus to the Philippian church. So let's talk about Timothy and Epaphroditus, since those are two big characters like in, that show up in this passage. So Timothy was uh, much younger than Paul. He was a native of the city of Lystra, which is in modern-day Turkey. And like his mother was named Lois, who was a follower of Jesus, and his grandma was a follower of Jesus, too, named Eunice. Yeah, Eunice was his mom, and Lois was his grandma, and they were both strong spiritual influences in Timothy's life. And Timothy's father was Greek, and it's implied in Paul's writings that Timothy's dad wasn't a Christian. So Paul met Timothy on his first missionary journey in Acts chapter 14, and a couple years later, also on his, on his second missionary journey um, through that area, this sounds a little crazy. It's probably a little cultural, but like Timothy, when he was pretty, when Timothy was pretty young, like Timothy, Timothy's family allowed Paul to take Timothy with him as a traveling missionary, church planting apprentice, which sounds like a really long, intense, unpaid internship. So imagine like one of those. Like I had an unpaid internship personally once, and like I lived in a windowless basement in Wheaton, Illinois, and I got pay, paid zero dollars, and it was just. It was very interesting. This sounds way more intense, though. Okay, so when this intense unpaid internship turned out to be last a really long time, because at that time of Paul's writings, it, when Paul wrote this right here, Timothy had been with Paul for around 10 years. So, and in verse 19, Paul says that he hopes in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to the Philippians soon. So he's happy about sending him there. Paul says he has no one else like him. Why? Verse 20. Because Timothy will show genuine, real, authentic, 
non-manufactured concern for the welfare of the Philippians. So why is that a big deal? Verse 21, for everyone looks out for their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. Timothy, according to Paul, wasn't like everyone else because he looked to the interests of others, such as the Philippians, and most of all, he looked out for the interests of Jesus. Jesus is who mattered the most to Timothy. That's Timothy. Let's talk about Epaphroditus. Nobody names their kid Epaphroditus. Paul's words here in these verses are the, are the only clear reference to Epaphroditus in the whole Bible. So Epaphroditus was not an apostle like Paul. He wasn't an elder as far as we know. He wasn't a deacon as far as we know. There's no record of any unique gospel work that he accomplished. Nothing is known about his family, his personal background, his conversion, how long he had been a believer. Uh, or his specific work in the churches in Philippi or Rome or anywhere else. This guy is practically a ghost. He just shows up, and then he, in this passage here, then he just vanishes. So why it, but this guy, like Paul, specifically put him in this, in these scriptures right here for a reason. Why is that? Let's look at the clues. From Paul's words, we can see that Epaphroditus was a member of the church in Philippi, and he was sent by the Philippians to take care of Paul. So in verse 25, Paul refers to Epaphroditus as his brother, which means they're in the same spiritual family. So when we put our faith in Christ, like one of the benefits of that is that we get adopted into God's family through faith in Christ. So that's why there's a lot of brother and sister language in the New Testament when it talks about Christians. So he refers to him as his co-worker, which means that they work side by side in the gospel. He refers to him as a fellow, his fellow soldier, which means they share in the common struggles with the work of the gospel. So then we aren't given many details about why or how he became ill, but according to Paul, he almost died for the work of Christ, and the reason he didn't die was because, verse 27, God had mercy on him. And even though we don't know the details of his illness, like it's notable that in the midst of his suffering, verse 26, it says he longed for the Philippians and he was distressed because of them. So Epaphroditus was focusing on the needs of Paul. He was focusing, and he was suffering and almost died, and in the midst of his suffering, he was focusing on the Philippians as well. At his core, what we can see in this is that Epaphroditus was not self-focused, he was others-focused. He was a servant. He was characterized by that. And Paul says in verse 29, welcome him in the Lord and honor people like him. Timothy and Epaphroditus seem like good guys, but why is Paul talking about them? I remember reading this passage for the first time when I was in college, and I just remember thinking, oh yeah, Paul's just talking about logistics and details. Like, oh, there's these guys who are going to come see you. Just, just welcome them. Like, they're really great. Just a heads up. And I do think there are some details and logistics, like reasons why he's saying that. But it's actually the purpose of it is a little bit deeper than that and more significant. Because Paul's talking about them and sending them because because Timothy and Epaphroditus are real-life examples of what Paul's been explaining throughout chapter 2. Chapter 2 is not very, of Philippians is not very long, so this afternoon, like, I'm going to encourage you to read it. It's really great stuff. So, so right before this passage, in chapter 2, Paul exhorts the Philippians to, this is a direct quote, do nothing out of selfish ambition and vain conceit. 
Rather, in humility, value, uh, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. And in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. And then he spends the next several verses talking about who Jesus is and what he's like. The reason why Paul's taking the time to describe Timothy and Epaphroditus is because he's laboring to make the point that these guys are real-life examples of what he's exhorting them to become. It's as if he's saying, everything I've been saying to you that you should become in Christ, these guys are examples, and they're not living it out, and they are living it out, and they're not being fake about it. Verse 20, Timothy has genuine concern for your welfare. He served with me for the good of others, for the work of the gospel. He's truly living out the example of Christ and took on the very nature of a servant. Timothy, he's not serving others out of selfish ambition and vain conceit. Everyone looks out to their own interests, but Timothy, he's proved himself. You should look to him as a real-life example of someone who has the mindset and attitude of Jesus, just like I've been telling you. Become what you see in him. And Epaphroditus, he longs for you. He is distressed for you. He almost died being a servant in humility because he values others above himself. He is not obsessed with his own interests. He is obsessed with the interests of others. Why? Because he authentically has the same mindset as of Jesus, like I was just talking to you about earlier in this chapter. Jesus took on the very nature of a servant and became obedient to death while serving us. And Epaphroditus, he almost died while serving others. Epaphroditus was a suffering servant while serving Jesus, who is the true and better suffering servant. You should look to Epaphroditus as a real-life example of someone who has the mindset and attitude of Jesus. Become what you see in him. Timothy and Epaphroditus, they are real-life examples of the stuff I'm talking to you about. You should imitate them as they imitate Christ. Look at their examples. Imitate them. That's, what Paul, that's why Paul's talking about them. He's not just two guys like, eh, they're coming. But let's not stop at Timothy and Epaphroditus. Like, if you zoom out, like, when, hopefully when you read chapter 2 sometime. So, like, if you zoom out for the rest of chapter 2, um, Timothy and Epaphroditus are the third and fourth examples in this chapter alone that Paul, who Paul says are worth imitating. So, first and foremost, in chapter 2, he gives the example of Jesus for the Philippians to imitate in the first part of this chapter. That's example number one. Right before this, Paul gives an example of himself for the Philippians to imitate. That's example number two. And then in this passage, he talks about Timothy and Epaphroditus, Epaphroditus as examples for the Philippians to imitate. That's number three and four. I just did math. All right. Paul is saying that these are real-life examples. There's Jesus. He's the best example. There's me. There's Timothy. There's Epaphroditus. You know why Paul is giving all these real-life examples to them? It's because, according to Paul, seeing a real-life example is critical for making disciples because you teach what you know, but you reproduce who you are. Author Dane Ortland says the following about this. He says, Christians need biblical teaching on godly self-sacrifice. But we also need real-life examples of those who place their faith and hope in Christ. 
Jesus is the primary model of humble service, but it's critical for us to look around for men and women who, like Timothy and Epaphroditus, set an example of humble service because they are living in gratitude of the gospel. So what he's saying in that quote ultimately is sound biblical teaching, great, 100% aboard. That's critical. But that's, but sound biblical teaching alone isn't enough when it comes to making disciples. That's because discipleship is often lacking and incomplete when we also don't see real-life examples of what's being taught to us. So I can't recall. I told the first services too. I'm like, I can't recall because I'm getting old and I can't remember everything that I tell people. But like, I can't recall if I told this story before. Maybe I have. But so there was 10, like a little over 10 years ago, uh, when we lived in Platteville, like we had college students live in our basement in the summer, just because that's kind of what we did. Um, so there was a college student living in the basement one summer, and I mowed my lawn, and one day, and then I so I moved our downspouts next to the house, and then I mowed, and I forgot to put the downspouts back, and, which is a problem. And then there was a huge rainstorm that night. So you, science. Okay, you know what happens when you move the downspouts back? Your basement floods. Okay, real home ownership 101. Anyway, so uh, so that's where our, that's where our college student was living down the basement. Very hospitable, I know. So the basement just flooded while he was down there. So the the whole night it was Becky and myself and the college student. We were just bailing water out of the basement also all night, and um, it was it was just terrible. It was super terrible, and. Um, there was this, uh, gosh, there was this, I remember there was this one time, I think it was like three in the morning or something like that, like Becky and the college student were upstairs and I was like carrying this big tote of something like that and I slipped on the concrete and I think my feet went above my head and like I just crashed and like I think I screamed or something like that and like they went downstairs and they were like, I thought you were dead, you know, and like I was just laying in water and I was just like, I just, uh, it's three in the morning. <laughs> anyway, it was terrible. So... So the next night uh, after our kids went to bed, because our kids were at the age where they actually go to bed at a, like an earlier time. <laughs> anyway, I miss those days. But so, um, so Becky and I and our college student, we were reminiscing and laughing about like how terrible the night was. And so, um, so, but then something unexpected happened. So our college student, he said just kind of like a little out of the blue. He was just like, and he was dead serious about it. He was like, um, he just asked us, why do you guys not fight and argue with each other? And then he, he proceeded to talk about how we, growing up, uh, he lived in the basement and like his basement flooded in the middle of the night and his parents screamed and fought with each other all night about it. Then he said that there was this other time that he was staying overnight at his friend's house in the basement, and then like his basement, the basement flooded there. This guy had terrible luck, by the way. So like his basement flooded there as well, and then um, his, uh, and then his friend's parents just like fought and argued all night too about it. Um, so our college student looked at us and like he said, "I know what the Bible says about patience and love and kindness." I just didn't know that married people were actually like that. So 
fast forward to 10 years, that guy is now married and he is following Jesus and his marriage and family just, and the trajectory of their life is just a lot of different than his upbringing in a good way. And God ultimately gets the credit for that. But like one of the reasons, the ways that God used that, because he ordains the ends and the means to the ends. And like part of what God used for that was just seeing a real life example of what he was reading in the Bible. Because like you teach what you know, but you reproduce who you are. And that was true for Jesus too. So, so Will Metzger in his book, Tell, Tell the Truth, he he writes about how when he first started following Jesus, the, the people, he saw how the people in this church were just really obsessed with passing out these little like gospel tracts that sometimes people do. There's like these little pamphlet thingies um, to strangers. So he would he joined in and like did that with the rest of his church. And but he said, like, even as a young Christian, he would see them doing this and he would think to himself, why did God bother to send his son when he could have just sent a tract? And it's a good question because like, God didn't just quick send his son and then right away die for, us, die for our sins, get that over with, and quick get back to his eternal union with the Father. No, he didn't do that. He spent three full years with his, disciple, with his disciples like, as a real-life example to them. Yeah, it was like three full years of doing that. And there's a lot of... like reasons for that and theological reasons for that and practical reasons for that. But you want to know one of them, one of the reasons why he did that? It's because Jesus knew that you teach what you know, but you reproduce who you are. He wants his disciples to see his example and then for us to imitate him. And let's also take note that in Paul's letter to the Philippians, which is actually really short, that's why people often read Philippians, and like, it's worth noticing that Paul doesn't try to comprehensively explain every single detail of what it looks like to have the mindset of Christ and what it, every single detail of what it looks like to do nothing out of selfish ambition and vain conceit. Like, Paul could have tried to be comprehensive about and spell out every little thing. Like, these are all the practical applications that you need to put into practice and what it looks like for you. Like, Paul was in prison. He had the time. I've watched Shawshank Redemption. There's nothing to do in prison. Like, he could have, he could have like, written more and been way more specific he did something better for them. I'm sending these guys to you, Timothy and Epaphroditus. Imitate them. I don't need to comprehensively tell you how to live out your faith. That's impossible. Just watch their example and imitate them as they imitate Christ. That's, a, that's an effective biblical way to make disciples because you teach what you know, but you reproduce who you are. Yeah, and that phrase, like, you teach what you know, but you reproduce who you are. My friend Scott told me that about 15 years ago, and I don't think I talk about this a lot because, like, I don't know, whatever. But, like, I think about that phrase all the time. Like, all the time. Um, and surely there are ditches to avoid when thinking about that phrase because the burden of someone changing on a heart level in a meaningful way is not ultimately on me or the strength of my example like, someone's heart changing ultimately is something that God does. So I don't need to fall into the performance trap, like, with that kind of stuff. And on top of that, sometimes, for better or worse, people don't follow the example, like I said. Welcome to making disciples and being a leader. 
that being said, like it is a truism in life that you can teach you can teach what you know, but what actually gets reproduced in others is who you are. That is always weighty and sobering for me to think about. The end of chapter one in Philippians, Paul says to live your life in a manner, manner worthy of the gospel. And when you dovetail that with chapter two, the question evolves, evolves to, is my life worthy of being imitated? Is my attitude towards others worth imitating? Is my gentleness worth imitating? Is my opinionatedness worth imitating? Is my obsessiveness with my hobbies worth imitating? Is my devotion to purity worth imitating? Is my commitment to integrity when no one else is watching, is that worth imitating? Is my commitment to the gospel on a heart level worth imitating? My commitment and attitude towards my spouse, spouse worth imitating? Is my sacrificial attitude towards my kids worth imitating? Is the way I talk about my kids when they're not around, is that worth imitating? Is my fascination with politics, is that worth imitating? Is my desire for being right worth imitating? Is my appetite for success or performance or laboring to craft a certain image, is that worth imitating? Is the way I think and talk about money, is that worth imitating? My teachability, my humility, is that worth imitating? And when I give examples like that, um, we have the freedom through the gospel to ask ourselves those kind of questions without feeling condemned. Because when we have faith in Christ, that means that um, we are not condemned because Man, our identity is in Christ and not in how great or how poor of an example we have, are. So in a gospel-centered way, it frees us to ask those kind of questions in a free, an inviting kind of way. And in a non-self-condemning, non-performance-oriented kind of way, like if you want to make disciples, then you need to be asking yourself those kinds of questions as well. Are you living the kind of life that's worth imitating? I have a master's degree in biblical studies. Isn't that impressive? Um, when my kids get out of high school, I've thought about getting my doctorate. But when it comes to, when it comes to making disciples, if, if my life isn't worth imitating, then any kind of Bible degree that I have means pretty much nothing. Because I can teach what I know, but what actually gets reproduced in others is who I am. And if we're going to continue to make disciples as a church, and by God's grace we have been, like, we need to ask ourselves in a gospel-centered, non-performance trap kind of way, are you living the kind of life that's worth imitating? You teach what you know, but you reproduce who you are. And even though that is true, we always need to remember that you aren't the perfect example Jesus is. He's the good news. You aren't always worthy of people imitating you, but Jesus is. And without the power of the gospel, any kind of example that we strive to become will never be truly fruitful because Jesus said in John 15, like, apart from me, you can do nothing. That's why we strive to remember him and his example, not our example. Because he's the ultimate goal. Like this, 
the ultimate goal is for like him to re- for us to remember him. That's why we take communion. So when we take communion, like the bread, it symbolizes his body, and like the the drink, it symbolizes his blood. And those things were broken and shed happily for you. Like he lived the perfect example of a life that we were supposed to live, and he died the death that we were supposed to die because because of the rebellion in our heart towards him and his example. So when you go take communion, that's you responding with a heart full of trust in him and the perfect example that he's lived for you on, here, on, his, on your behalf. So before you take communion, like, I would really encourage you, thank you, I would encourage you to thank him for forgiving you for looking to the wrong examples in your own life, examples that aren't rooted in following him, and, and pray and thank him for being the perfect example for you. Like, ask him to empower you with his spirit to become the kind of disciple-making example he wants you to be. Like, like I encourage you, like, talk to him about those things authentically, and in doing so, don't make communion this kind of religious exercise where you go through the motions, because ultimately it's about remembering him. So if you aren't a follower of Jesus, I would encourage you to hold off on taking communion because you don't want like to go through re- religious motions either. But like, but if you're ready to respond to him as your forgiver and as your leader, I would encourage you to just like sur- pray to him, sur- surrender to him in faith, and go take communion. Yeah, you take the bread, you dip it in the juice. There's two communion stations in the back. The worship team is going to be playing up here, and you can go and go and take communion on your own whenever you're ready. Let's pray. God, really thankful for, for who you are and your example. And um, yeah, thank you for, for living the perfect life that we we're supposed to live and dying the death that we we're supposed to die. Thank you for that um, because of who you are and because we are adopted by you, that we don't have to fall into the performance trap, God. But also we pray that you, in the, in the midst of finding our identity in you, that... Um, You'll just really empower us to reflect you and imitate you. And um, I pray you'll just move in our hearts with that as well. And we love you. Amen.